You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. I'm Frank Imperial, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Hey, Frank, uh, what's going on? Is there a technical problem? No problem on this side. You just asked me to host an archive show. Oh, right. Why do I keep forgetting that? Well, good luck with the show, Frank. Oh, are you going to mute me? Definitely. Two of the most popular shows from the more than 250 archival episodes of Here's the Thing are Radiohead's Tom York and R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe. The frontmen for two of the most interesting and influential bands of the last several decades have a lot in common. Michael Stipe was a founding member of R.E.M., the band that practically defined alternative music in the 1980s and early 90s. R.E.M. released 15 studio albums and was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2007. R.E.M. broke up in 2011, and Michael Stipe has been exploring other ways of making art and music since then. But first, Alec's 2013 interview with Tom York. He formed Radiohead with some of his friends when he was just 16 years old. Since then, the band has been nominated for 18 Grammys, won three, and sold tens of millions of records. Radiohead's nine studio albums have demonstrated the group's comfort with experimentation. Tom York said technology made some of that easier. After we did OK Computer, I finally, in the late, late 90s, you could like go on tour with a laptop, and it was powerful enough that you could record, edit, use synthesizers built into it, and it wouldn't crash, and it was fairly stable. So I first started getting into it then. And what I thought was really interesting is when we were working on OK Computer, I started using, learning the software that we were using in the studio to edit. We were still mostly working on tape, old school. But um, I suddenly thought, well, hang on a minute. If I can learn how all this equipment works, I'll have a completely different way of thinking about how to write. So I forced myself to learn all this equipment and learn to use the laptop because a lot of music I was into was being made electronically anyway. And I kind of thought it would be interesting to do it within the band because normally musicians don't fall into doing the production side of it or building the tracks. They'll like stay 
this side of the studio fence with the mics and let someone tell you what Front of do. the house, back of the yeah. house, kind of. So I definitely was much more into blurring that up. Did Nigel produce both your solo albums? Yeah, he does He does the lot. And he, he, does, did, and he yeah. did all of the Radiohead albums? Yeah, he does. Wait, all, what do you attribute that to, having that kind of faith in someone? You find someone you trust, I mean, not all the time, and I, we do argue a lot, <laughs> um, but to have someone who's like um, a sounding board all the time, it makes everything so much more fun. Because if you're, if you're knocking out ideas, you can't edit them and knock them out at the same time. Like if you're on a stage and you're trying to get through your part or whatever, you have to have someone out front saying, okay, that's not working. Exactly. I mean, I do uh, on my own a lot. I do work, you know, you generate ideas. But all I then have is a mountain of ideas that gradually I then have to sift through. And it just takes so long. It's so much more fun sharing it with someone. And what did he think about your forays into computerized music? Oh, he was into it. I, I did wonder when I first started doing it, but he was into it because he watched me doing it in such a different way to him. I mean, I was like um, a kid being given a hammer. I was just hammering away on stuff. I didn't really know what I was doing, but he was kind of fascinated by that, you know, and he'd come and literally tidy up the mess <laughs> I'd done on the computer. What were other people? Who were other people that were working in that in that area that you listened to, who then, else was making? Well, yeah, I mean, then, then and now. Well, then it was I was obsessed with Aphex Twin, then, and Otecra. There was a lot of really interesting things happening in Britain then, on this label called Warp, and it was it was. How funny. do you spell that? Warp, as in the warp. Warp. W a r p. Warp. Like the floor is warped. Yeah. After the flood. Yeah, and I they, must say, with your accent, that could have been any one of four words when I said <laughs> on this label called Warp. Walk, warm, warp, warp. wall, warp, warp, warp. Yeah, we say, say it like we say it here in the United States. Warp. You know, warp. warp. It's warp. It's a country and western record label. You bet your bottom dollar there, boy. Yeah. So you, you, is you were, you were obsessed with the music that was on warp, warp records. <laughs> Because um, <laughs> it didn't have any guitars, and uh, I was having a troubled relationship with my guitar at the time. Is that true? <laughs> well, not really. It's just like I ended up being in a band, signing this to this big record label, and it's a band with big letters, so certain things go with that. But yet, when I was at college, I was listening to a lot of other things, and and after a while, it was like, oh, this is it's really annoying that. I felt like we couldn't break out of that, so I just started forcing us to break out of that because it didn't make sense to me. You've been with those guys for how long now? We started when we were 16, mm -hmm. Radiohead, which is um, now I'm 44, so that's quite a while. And some bands that have had a tremendous longevity, obviously the Rolling Stones are the premier example, yeah. uh, they've changed partners over the years, like they were the New York Yankees. You know, there's somebody else playing third base every four or five years. Yeah. And, and But you guys, it's the same cast of, of people all the time. Well, what do you attribute that to? I, persistence. My great diplomatic skills. Not. <laughs> <laughs> but there must be times when they've... I mean, I'll never forget McCartney said to me, even the Beatles got tired of being the Beatles. Were the times you guys sat there and looked at each other and said, I think we're done? Uh, I, do, never. I do that frequently. Right. Frequently. I mean, at least... The others too? Not as much. Right. <laughs> they just wait for me to do it. Right. Um, so we just did a tour last year, right? And it was probably, in theory, the scariest one we've ever done because it was lots of big gigs, which I normally am spending my time trying to shy away from. 
Why? Because you can't achieve technically in a large space where you normally want to? Exactly that. You can't get across to people the right way, I felt. So we did spend a lot of time and effort coming up with like a stage design which used screens in a certain way which made it intimate even though, you know, some nights was like 30 or 40,000 people oh. trying to create some sort of intimacy with that. And when it worked, it was insane. It was because the upside of playing to that many people is you have this really crazy collective energy that you can tap into, like a crowd, you know, thing. There's one show we did in Phoenix that sticks in my mind where there was something about maybe that it was in Phoenix and, and people don't get the opportunity, those sort of people don't get the opportunity to get together that often or something. There was some sort of excitement within the crowd that was so great to play with. When when we hit it musically, it felt like the whole room, the whole of the building was moving. Honestly, we both came off stage. I understand. You know? Yeah, I understand. That th- and it's bonkers. I, I understand that not from my own experience, but from seeing artists perform you know i often ask myself why the hell would would you put yourself through this because it's very stressful it's a lot of pressure and for me mentally i have to i build myself up to it in my head gradually and and it sounds really precious but it messes with my head i want to get to that give it to me the a couple of hours before you go out there and you got to blow this thing out for all these people i just stone cold silence Basically, almost meditative. Well, yeah, I do. I do that and focused. I stand on my head for a bit, and I'm basically, I'm completely on my own until five minutes before we go on, and then we're all in a room together, pacing up and down like <laughs> wild animals, and then yeah. then we're on. But when we first started doing big shows, it was with my from Michael Stipe, and he does the total opposite. He literally. He'll be talking to you, and then someone taps in on the shoulder, and then they're on. And I was like, how the hell do you do that, man? And I, and I tried to do it like that. Couldn't do it. And right. so I, I ended up going... Did, he, did, you, did you get any indication why Stipe could do that? Um, there's a lot of nice spiritual tones inside of R.E.M.'s music, too. Yeah, no, I don't know. I think what he used to do was he'd stand there for the first two tunes, barely move he was a sort of lightning conductor and he was just waiting for it to hit and then when it hit he was off but he would wait and if it wasn't going to hit he was still there three or four tunes later and waiting he kind of warmed up in front of everybody Mm -hmm. gauging it all whereas I can't do that because I have to sort of be clear of everything before I you know whatever I I need to um, be completely empty I started playing guitar when I was seven. I sat down and said I was going to be Brian May. And I was like, not a bad thing to be. Yeah. And then I tried to do, I read, like when I was 10 or something, I, I read that um, he'd built his first guitar himself, which is the one he still plays. So I tried to do that, but my efforts were. <laughs> in that tragic. sense, you were not Brian May. No, in that sense. And the handcrafting no. of the guitar. And I had to cheat with the neck on the guitar. I found an old, a neighbor gave me a neck of an electric guitar. I thought, great, okay, that's good. But, you know, I, I was 10 or 11, so I was trying to, like, bolt it together to this other piece of wood that I'd cut out, and it was just a disaster. But it kind of worked, but it was ugly. Was your family musical? 
Not really, no. The only one that sticks out is apparently my great-grandmother. She'd get really hammered and then stay up playing her pump organ thing downstairs all night and keep the family up. That's Were it. you around? Did you witness that? I met her once and she was kind of... She wore black and was quite scary <laughs> when I was really tiny. But neither of your parents were artists, musicians. No, 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 no. When the guitar came into your life when you're seven, uh, Brian May or no, was it music itself and were you moved by music itself? Or was it like many people when they're very young, was it rock stardom? Was it, no. You know, never that. No. It was, it was... You weren't running around your bedroom imitating... Jagger, and you thought like you wanted no, to be a I rock just icon. Thought, uh, my my whole thing was we didn't have any sound system in the house. We had nothing, no hi-fi, nothing, except for in my dad's car, um, and it had a tape player in it. So I went and would sit for hours. I would sit for hours, and it was the sound of Brian May's guitar. Actually, it was it was one of those funny things where you know when you. You turn something up and you're in a very controlled, loud environment. Just that sound was just, you know, nothing else. It was that. When you're that small and you've never, I've never really heard music particularly at all up until that point. You know, it's funny. It's got a weird thing. But I mean, lots of kids at that age, did, you know, their parents didn't really have hi-fis or anything mm. as such. The only guy I did know who had a hi-fi down the road only played ABBA, which I thought was worse than not having one, but that was me. Some ABBA's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the guitar, and you're trying to fashion your own guitar by the time you were 11, and then when do you take another step toward deepening your commitment? How old were you when you formed the band? I did have a band when I was 11. It was very exciting, like, um, going around to a friend's house and setting up and jamming, and all our mates would come and hang out, and girls which I thought, hmm, this is interesting. But that sort of fell to bits because I kept fighting with the drummer. And then when I was 16, I was thinking, well, okay, I need to get this together, really, and just went around the school sort of choosing people. So you went around picking people, I, and what I, happened? I got Ed because he was dressed like um, Morrissey and he had some cool socks, and I saw he'd had a guitar. I had no idea whether he could play it or not. I didn't really care. I got Colin because I knew Colin could play very well and I needed a bass player who could play very well, but he had never played bass before. And his brother Johnny was this mythical musical prodigy, so roped him in. And then uh, Phil was the only drummer we knew anyway. So And Andy had a house down the road that we could rehearse in. And you're all in, and you lived where? You grew up where? Well, this was at Abingdon School near Oxford. And, and then when you form Radiohead, when you're 16... Basically, yeah. We started sort of writing, doing demos and messing about. And it was, you know, it was quite interesting straight away that it was quite, uh, I think, because Phil had quite a lot of experience. He was a bit older and he'd had his own band. So he knew how to put things together a bit. And in fact, we used to go and do demos in his sister's bedroom, like right from the beginning, which, which was great. I mean, there's nothing better than like, just starting off by just trying to write demos from scratch, even though you can't really play, even though you don't know each other, that's where you start, you know. It's kind of a nice way to figure out what, where you're about. What do you think you do best? You uh, lead a band, mm, you... Not very uh, good at that. Well, uh, the, you, you play guitar, mm. you write music, you produce music, you do the, and you sing. What do you think your greatest strength is, if you had to pick one? I don't know what I'm doing. Right. I like the fact that I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> 
I think, well, no, honestly, I can't. I, I go, I'll go through whole phrases where I haven't got a clue. I regularly lose complete confidence in, in what I'm doing. Why do you think that is? Partly because I think I don't quite understand how it happens. Right. When what happens? When the appreciation comes to you? No, when you're, when you're piecing something together. Got it. Right? right. Things will fall into place. How you make it. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the nicest bit about the creative thing, the nicest bit about recording and writing is this sort of weird limbo where you, in between, scratching away, scratching away, nothing really happening, nothing really happening, and then something wants to be built and starts to get built. You just have to let it happen. And then it gets to the end and you, and you look at it a few months later and go, huh, how did that happen? This sort of weird amnesia that goes with it. Something will happen, one little sound goes off, and you go, oh, that's really nice. When I was at school, I didn't get on with the school system at all. Um, I see it in my son, the same, that sort of, the mechanics of how a school operates and how you're supposed to blend in or whatever. So I hid in the music stroke art department and had a great time there and discovered that actually that's what I wanted to do. Straight away, the heads of both schools just saw what I was up to. Is this the teacher that you often credit with your... Yeah. What was the teacher's name? Terry James. But but it was him and uh, my art teacher as well, actually. It was like someone sort of takes you under their wing and they say, well, you know what, you're actually quite good at Mentoring this. Mentoring is a very critical thing in this business. Yeah, because it's, en- it's enough. At that age, it's enough to just get a little push and then, oh, okay... Or does someone push you in a different direction? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. that would be bad. So, yeah, no, how about you go to the other I think department? you need to Engineering be a lawyer. Your, yeah, right. I'd, I'd, my father used to think I used to go into advertising, which is like... <laughs> really? Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, I'd really be good at that, but selling you know, other people's well, shit. Well, one thing you're good at is avoiding my original question, oh. which was, what do you think you're best at? Oh, damn. And let's I try to I'd choose if you can. If you, may, if you don't mind, on. confine yourself to the <laughs> list I provided. Uh, what do you think you're best at? Okay, this is multiple choice. Guitar, band kind of, uh, you know, paternal figure, songwriting, producing, singing. I guess singing. What was singing to you? How did your singing evolve where you arrived at where you are now? Where most people say you have one of the most evocative singing voices in all of music today. Well, basically, I went to a few singing lessons, but that was basically just so I could literally breathe right, you know. Mm. Um, My favorite singers like Bjork. When I watched Bjork sing... It's in here. It's right here. They say in yoga and stuff that whatever it is, I can't remember, that that spot at the top of the forehead, that you really... Most singers, like Neil Young's the same, he sings into this spot in his head, and and what he's singing, he's already heard. Do you know what I mean? He's hearing it come out. The same with, with Bjork. When she's singing, she's singing what she's hearing. So... There's no force. It's a force in itself. It took me a while to get that. You know, even when we were on tour with R.E.M. back um, when we were doing the Benz in 96 or whatever, it was st- I was still trying to figure it out then. 
watching Michael and wanting to sound like Michael, but I couldn't, you know, because my voice is in a different tone completely and so on. But what I did learn, what you know, watching him was, again, that thing of, like, watching someone who their voice is in sort of command of them rather than the other way around. There's a state you know. that they enter almost. Yeah, and but it's very natural, but it takes a long time for that to become natural, I think. Like any singer, it takes a long time to find that thing, and it keeps changing. To me, how I sing now, or to me it feels different to a few years ago. Why? It just does. It just does age have anything to do with it? Well, yeah, there's probably some physical element to it, but but also just where you're at, you know. Because singing is nothing but like probably like acting. Singing is nothing but being in the moment. That's it. Radiohead's Tom York. Did you know that there are over 250 episodes in the Here's the Thing archive? If you like these in-depth conversations between Alec and other actors, policymakers, and musicians. Go to heresthething.org and take a look around. After the break, Alec and Tom York talk about fatherhood and how it changes performing. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. 
the ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Frank Imperial, in for Alec Baldwin on Here's the Thing. Tom York seems a little uneasy about his fame, and Alec wondered, would he trade the trappings of being a celebrity for a better world? If I said to you that I snap my fingers and you go back to having a very normal life and you're not you at all with everything that goes with it, mm. and the rest of the world is elevated, and the rest of the world gets better, things oh. you care about. Think of an issue you oh, care I see. about. Oh. And I say to you, Tom York, Tom York, Tom York, you go back and the world gets better, would you make that change? Define better. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tricky question, but you do, it's, yeah, it's not an either or, but you do care about other things. Is there an issue that you are embracing now? Is there something you're involved with now? Or is it I, more an ongoing one? I, well, in my slack-assed fashion, I was helping um, Greenpeace do this thing which was trying to stop drilling in the Arctic. But it sounds like it's kind of working because... The company seem to be pulling out because they can't... Shell just pulled out. Yeah, that's right. I don't think that's entirely down to us, but I think it definitely helped that we're making their life extremely difficult everywhere they turn. But the challenge now is to turn the Arctic into reserve so it can't happen. Mm -hmm. Because what that was going to do is create this gold rush, you know, oil rush, um, up there, which was just going to be insane. And this at the same time where the, the ice is melting, basically they only started considering it was a possibility because the ice was melting, they thought, okay, great, maybe we've got a better chance of drilling, mm -hmm. which is like... That's takes, a global warming irony to a, a global warming doesn't mean level. less oil to them, it means more oil. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was kind of stuck in that for a while because, yeah, the, the, to me the irony of it was too much. Um, I don't know where I'll go next. I don't... I find it very stressful. I did get involved a few years ago. We did this thing in Britain, the first Climate Change Act, which meant the government was is committed to reducing CO2 emissions 2050 by 90%. And now lots of countries have got it, but it was the first one. And the government didn't want to do it, Blair didn't want to do it, but we found this interesting loophole and got thousands of people to send letters in and said at the bottom of the letter to the, uh, the MP, please can you pass this on to Blair, right? And apparently they were obliged to pass on these letters. So Blair was literally getting thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of letters, which doesn't normally happen. And he did pass the law after much arguing and me refusing to meet him because it was during the Iraq war and all sorts of... Which you were very critical of. Yeah, well, any normal human being would be. I agree. Anyway, I was very glad I did it. And the people I was working for at the time, I was, it was with Friends of the Earth and it was really inspiring and I became really good friends with the guy who was running Friends of the Earth at the time, Tony Juniper, who now works with Prince Charles. Um, and, um, and it was a great period, but I just, it burnt me out. Getting that close to politics. The most fascinating figure that we work with was the lobbyist that we had, our one lobbyist. So, like, we went into this Portcullis House in Britain. You probably have the equivalent here, I don't know what it's called. But Portcullis House was built for the lobbyists. It was built for special interest to go and sit with a cup of coffee, round table about this size, and wait for MPs to go past, collar them, sit them down, and lobby them in big we capital letters. We call that the Congress here. Okay, yeah, right, we call okay. that the Capitol building. But anyway, I found it completely fascinating, you know, because there's, there's hundreds of these people walking around. And I'm like, none of them are lobbying for us. 
except when you maybe possibly could argue that our one mate for Friends of the Earth was like technically, you know, maybe speaking for the people a little bit. But basically, they were all special interest. And they had the ear of government. And I just thought, hang on, <laughs> hang on a minute. How did this happen? Anyway, where were we a minute ago? I know where I want to go. Okay, go on then. Go there then. Your children. Do your children know who you are and what you do? Um, uh, yep. They're used to it. They're used to people coming up and saying hello. But most of the time it's very friendly and that's normal. That's their normal. That's what they've grown up with. And how old are they? Um, 12 and 7. So one seven, the age that you decided you wanted to yeah. be Brian May. Mm. And the other one's 12. And by then, he's, he, he would already have made his guitar with that neck. That was 11, I think you said. So the other kid yeah. is really... Where are they at musically? Um, my son is a great drummer, but I don't know if he'll want to do that forever or not. He's, like, not bothered, really, which is cool. You know, he just... And he comes and hangs out with me when I'm working in my studio. We just hang out, you know, we're friends. Um, but I don't think, you know, there, there's no burning ambition to be uh, musicians or anything, really, even though he's really good. He's for pleasure. I mean, at that age, that's good, right? Has fatherhood affected your work? Um, yes, but not really. The, you have the obvious things. where you Would you go out on the road more if you didn't have children? Yep. Yeah, some people Absolutely. Talk about that. Yeah. But that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. You know, being on the road is, is it's a... It's not a great way to live your life. It's, just, it's it's you don't want to do it all your life. You get a little bit un, gets a little unhealthy quite quickly, mentally if not physically. As you've gotten older and you look around the musical landscape, do you admire a lot of what's being done? Is your what, music in the, in the mainstream? In the mainstream, there's nothing in the mainstream. The mainstream is just a void, you know, to me. I mean, what's weird about putting a record out now, really, and this is not like sour grapes at all, it's just the fact the volume, literally the sheer volume of stuff that gets put out, it's like this huge freaking waterfall, and you just throw in your pebble in and it carries on down the waterfall, and that's that. Right, okay, next. Basically, you know, like in this country, the radio is tied up, and people don't really listen to the radio in the same way. It's It's... Music's going through a weird time because, on the one hand, as ever, there's always really exciting music being made. It's never not being made. It's a question of whether you're going to get to hear it or not. And I mean, I kind of, I kind of knew the game was up a few years ago when one of our sort of team of people came in saying, Nokia wants to offer you da -da 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 -da, millions of pounds because they want content. For their phones. And this is like in 2000, I don't know, early 2000s. And you're like, content what? You know, content. What, you mean music? Yes. Okay. Content. Yeah, maybe that, yes. Mm. Yeah. Just stuff. Could be music. Stuff, yeah, yeah stuff. Could have be you got, snoring. Have you got some stuff? You know, and you're like, oh, okay. And I think really the, my problem with it is it's like it's now like something to fill up the hardware with, you know. The music itself has become secondary to that, which is a weird thing to me. It's like the most pleasurable experiences you ever have is like when something's played to you, you don't know. 
like going around to a friend's house and they'll stick a tune on you like what the hell's this you know <laughs> which is what it's about you know that's what or like going into a store when I was a kid like and the new Smiths records come out and like and I'm going up to the guy I think that's like he's really cool like the indie store in town and just talking to him about music for 20 minutes you know and you know you share and now everywhere you go music is everywhere it's everywhere but, but it's not, not like music. yeah that's what I'm saying it's so content it's, yeah it's content is king <laughs> That bullshit will change, and when it does, then I think we'll have a resurgence. The underbelly will come back. Um, overbelly. And again. The, <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's middle-aged, it'll be overbelly. <laughs> so you're 43 years old. 44. 44 years old. Mm. It's just our professional courtesy that we shave a year off of all of our guests. Oh, really? Yeah, all of them. Um, you're in the now, and you're in the here, what have you, and I know I'm not saying that glibly, and you're not, no, but I'm saying, but you're not somebody who, like Mick Jagger, for example, like I wonder if Mick Jagger is going to hit a day, like does it happen in a day? Like is Mick Jagger in bed one day, and he picks up the phone, and he's like, you know, I just can't do it anymore, I can't get out of this bed, I can't do another fucking show again, and it's over. Like, do you think of other things? I think all the time of the next thing I'm going to do. Yeah. I, I, is there um, a next thing? You you don't have to tell us what it is, but do you no, think no, this will end? Time, uh, it would end if something happened to my voice. I don't know. Certain things could make it physically stop, and it will stop at some point. Something will happen. But for me, uh, I yeah, I'm always hearing different things. There's always half-finished things, which you ask poor old Nigel. He knows about that. There's always a mountain of half stuff I want to get into, stuff I've started, stuff I want to, you know. But I also think it's good to sort of take breaks because it's like anything. You start to go in small circles. Unless you're literally spending, unless you are just literally working too hard, it's a regenerative thing. I find that I'm... Well, I mean, my family, my friends know that I'm a nicer person if I'm working and I'm into what I'm doing than if I stop. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a period where I'm fairly unbearable if I do stop. For too long. Yeah, for too long. There's but a then specific that's not, time. You should stop. Probably, yeah, there's a threshold. But, like, if you want to shift, right, with your work, if you want to shift, if you're writing, if you're um, being creative at all, you kind of have to stop to make that shift because if you just I'm constantly creating I've got this <laughs> mountain of brilliant ideas you're making the basic mistake that you're assuming all your ideas are brilliant where in fact I need to go and do normal shit I need to I can't write unless I have a period where um, you're restored well no it's not restored just just um, reset I'm like just normal 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 you must have a lot of people in the music world, young people who look up to you. Um, one of the best buzzes, really, is that thing where someone comes up who's new and they're really into, you know, I'm really into what they're doing. It's really fascinating and it's really totally new to me. But yet the occasions when... They fed off of you. Yeah. And you're like, how could you, how could you feed off me? I don't see any of my stuff my in what DNA you're doing. What you're yeah, doing. but they see it, and I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Especially when it's like, it, so like cool. it's in hip hop. I'm like, really? You know, people within hip hop who, who are into Radiohead. I'm like, I find that so fascinating because, I mean, obviously, I'm massively into hip hop, and we we use hip hop as a reference point in the way we build tracks and stuff. But, but really, wow, that's bonkers.
honestly, that's one of the really good bits. But it's not really mentorship. It's just people who you admire are good at their shit, you know? And when it happens, it happens. Yeah. yeah. How does success make you feel? Well, how does it make me feel? It's always been a little bit far away from me. And the only time it sort of makes sense is when we play in front of people. And the rest of the time it's like, well, it's it's just, it's who I've been for so long, I can't tell you because it's just, that's what it is. I've probably been doing it more than I haven't in my life mm. in terms of years, in terms of time. So most of the time I don't really notice and people come up and I, and I go, well, that's nice, you know, thanks very much. You know, it's not like I'm not grateful, I'm just, I just don't notice. And then sometimes people, something will whack you over the head and you go, blimey. Things like doing the first time we did Saturday Night Live, for example, and you go, really? People give a shit? Because sometimes you can't, you don't know, you don't know. You mm-hmm. got, you're not you, for you're on the inside, you can't see it. And, and, and also, we spent so long running away from it. And I don't feel like I run away from it now because there's nowhere to run. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere to run. <laughs> run. Nowhere to run. And also, it is like, yeah, I'm really grateful for it. I'm That's a very good incredibly point. lucky. That's a very good point. There's nowhere to run and still do it. Yeah. I mean, I just think I'm well jammy, as we say. Uh, it's just really jammy, especially in the US, you know, like people really give a shit. And it's like, well, that's amazing. Radiohead's Tom York. To hear the complete conversation, go to heresthething.org. It's hard to believe that R.E.M. broke up a decade ago. When Alec talked to Michael Stipe in 2016, he was just five years into his post-R.E.M. life, with more time to pursue photography, teaching, and spending time with his friends and especially his family. What being an army brat did to myself and my sisters was to create probably a closer family dynamic than regular people have because we picked up and moved so much that we we were the foundation. It made you closer. It made us much closer. And so I'm very, very, very lucky man in that regard. I'm one of the ones who I like, I landed like, I got the gold ring and when it comes to family. Really? Yeah. You're, you have two sisters. Two sisters. So the three of you total. Yeah. And are they around? You see them? Are they, are they off in like Alaska and Fiji? Where no, they, the whole family lives in <clears throat> Athens, Georgia. And, they're in Athens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know Athens. Yeah. <laughs> 40 yes, Watt Club. Yeah, exactly. I know Athens. Yeah. And uh, wasn't Mike, was Mike from Athens? Mike Mills? Yeah. Actually from Macon. But Macon. We all met at college. You all were from, we all met at UGA. Yeah. yeah. Of the places I read that you lived when you were moving around in mm-hmm. Europe and in the South and so forth, was there one place you stayed the longest? Um, do you have a recollection, a memory of a place you were in? Do you, well, remember, do you remember Germany? Yeah, I remember Germany more than anywhere, really, I think. Uh, Germany and then, well, it's hard to say because I kind of see everything. So, I, But then I don't really remember everything. But Germany was, for me, a time that I feel like I remember almost every single day that we were there, which was about just under two years. How old were you? Seven and eight. How old were you when you'd say, I'm not a musician, I don't play music, but I feel like I have... You know, Elvis lives inside me. You know, I have, I have this desire, like everybody, everyone wishes they could sing and get up there and perform and have that effect on people. And um, 
you'd hear MacArthur Park. Mm, you know, Richard song. Harris would sing MacArthur Amazing. Park. And I go, God, I remember listening to that song on a transistor radio. Yeah. And I go back and look up the date and I go, oh my God, I was nine. Yeah. It's so much younger. It's in you so much younger. Can you can you remember when how old you were when you let that in? And well, for starters, what a great song to reference. I mean, that's one of those really insanely bizarre pop songs that, you know, here's a guy that doesn't sing. He's... He's a drunk most of his life. He's a he's brilliant, and for some Crazy. reason, for some reason, the songwriter tags him to sing this insanely beautiful song about nothing about a cake with green icing that's melting in the rain. It's really, it's have, if, no wonder if, it went in. Yeah, I love that song, and I love the song. And the guy who wrote it was one of one of our great American songwriters, Jimmy Webb. I did I did an interview with him once uh, for a book that he wrote, and, and uh, he called me on the phone to talk about songwriting, and we had an hour to talk and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. He talked the entire time. I couldn't wait for the book to come out to see what I had said because I, I don't remember having said anything. It was, right. it was pretty pretty good. But but do you remember uh, like an age? Was there, is there a, a time in your life when you remember when music came in? Music comes in. It was always there. My kind of ground zero point was at the age of 15 when Patti Smith released Horses. Horses right. And I bought it the day it came out. But prior to that, the songs that really resonated with me on radio were the Banana Splits, the Archies. You know, it was really kind of crappy, beautiful <laughs> pop music. The Monkees. The Monkees. Yeah. I didn't have a brother or sister who turned me on to The Who and Alice Cooper and the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, uh, where my bandmates did have that. I listened to what kids listened to and what the cereal boxes were telling you was music. But following that, it was really um, Benny and the Jets by Elton John. And the song, um, Hey kids, boogie choo, jump up and down in blue suede shoes. Rock On by David Rock Essex. By David Essex. Which I kind of rewrote as the song Drive on Automatic for the People. It opens, the, it opens that record. And um, uh, I rewrote that song. I rewrote a bunch of songs from the 70s and songs that I remembered. Like Everybody Hurts was my take on um, Love Hurts. Kind of a direct left there, but but uh, it turned into a very different song. And do you learn to play an instrument? I played accordion when I was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Well, I wanted to play organ, but we couldn't afford the next instrument up, so I wound up with an accordion. And I played quite well. You were an accomplished accordionist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You could have been on Sullivan. Yes. <laughs> now, when, now but, but as many people... Their entry into music is whether it's, you know, they pick up a guitar and there's obviously a discipline, a curiosity. I'm always mesmerized by this, by men and women who they pick up a guitar when they're nine and ten years old. They just start to explore that. Mm -hmm. Or beyond that, in a more traditional way, someone's parents are saying, sit down at that piano and you're going to do this lesson for mm -hmm. a year and grind them down until they break through and they can really play the piano, then they're grateful that they have this skill that uh, attracts all these people. Was there anything like that for you? There was no formal musical training? None. So thus you knew, is, is, is it safe to assume, did you always know you wanted to be a singer? No. The whole idea of punk rock was that anybody could do this, that it, was, it wasn't this kind of wholly handed down from on high talent or skill. And I was and remain quite literal. And so when they said anybody can do this, I said, okay, I'll do it. And I, I guess I was too lazy to learn an instrument. Do you believe that everybody, anybody can do it? No, absolutely not. Right, right. When did you realize you could sing? Well, honestly, about 10 years ago, I realized that my voice was that specific. I never, through most of our career, I didn't 
understand why people liked my voice or thought that my voice was that different. And it's a very different voice. It's a very recognizable voice. So when you were singing in, in, the, in the beginning of your career, it was awful. Right. We, were, uh, we were terrible. I mean, I sang Rockabilly. You mentioned Elvis Presley earlier. I was singing in this kind of hiccup uh, Elvis Presley style, probably inspired by the cramps. I, I loved Lux Interior, and I loved the cramps, and I saw them perform on, I think, one of the first shows they ever did outside of New York City. And, um, and I thought he was just amazing, and they were incredible. So I kind of picked up that Rockabilly thing. But I don't think I really developed a voice until... My well, people that love Murmur would argue with that. But anyway, I didn't feel confident with my voice until probably the third or fourth album, which was six years in. When you were at UGA with the other three, what do you think that they saw in you that they picked you for that job? Well, it sounds arrogant to say it, but charisma. It was that that right. that je ne sais quoi that we all know when someone walks into a room. Or, right. And when I walk into a room, I don't have that. But when I'm on stage performing with that band behind me. It, was, it just was the chemistry between all of us. It really was. And you opened your mouth and sang those songs with those guys and something happened. Yeah. You believe that? Yeah. How, how did you find each other? Um, clubs? A record store. A record store, yeah. right. You saw Mills in a record store. No, no Peter, uh, Buck. Peter, Peter Buck, rather, yeah. in a record store. Yeah, and he looked really cool. And a lot of people back then didn't look really cool, but he looked really cool. And he would turn me on to different records that, that would come into the store, and, and like Suicide, the first Suicide album. And we hit it off. And then I had to convince him to start a band with me. What was it about horses that appealed to you? I can't say. I, I mean, outside of, you know, I, I had really good taste, as it turns out. I mean, it's one of the greatest records ever made. And, and I did buy it and listen to it on the day that it was released, which is kind of crazy. But um, You've spoken about the cover art appeal to you, too. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible image. Uh, but she represented something other and something, to me, alien. And part of that was this openness, this fluidity about sexuality that I think certainly resonated with me and with millions of other people who were questioning their sexuality or, or, or emerging into something that they weren't familiar with or something that wasn't, at the time, quite accepted or acceptable. We're doing her on this show in front of a live audience out of oh, New Jersey. She's a, she's a great conversation, <laughs> yeah. But You related to that image. Yeah, it, it, it struck the me. Other. Really, really the third song, I think, it, it was Birdland is the song that touched me in a way that I don't think anything had ever touched me before. And I stayed up all night listening to it. I went to school the next day, and I said, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And then I, it took me two years to find people that I could play with. That didn't work out very well. And I, I wound up moving to Athens following my father's retirement and started the band. And when you leave Athens, I mean, you, there's a, a kind of gestation there in, in Athens and performing in clubs in all over Georgia, are you like well, what kind of do? You, what's the what's the circuit you get into there when you're at that level? Well, it was early days, so there wasn't really a circuit. I mean, one was kind of cobbled together by bands like REM and Pylon, also from Athens, and Black Flag, Sonic Youth. All these bands were playing like these pizza parlors and gay gay discos and kind of anywhere that would let a band set up in a corner. Music is very different then than it is now and the way that music is consumed and the way that it's marketed and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and most bands, I mean, the, you, yours could be different. I don't know. I want to find that out. Most bands enter into a business agreement in order to take them to the next plateau that's disadvantageous for them. Did that happen to you? No. Um, when you started signing with people, did you maintain all the rights to all your publishing? Yeah. You did? Yeah, and we own our masters. Yeah. Peter and Mike 
particularly were encyclopedic about music, and they had read every biography and knew every in and out of every story of a band that got so far and then it fell apart because of this or this reason, and they were determined to prevent that from happening to us. Who did you sign with? Who was your first label you signed with? The first label was IRS Records, Miles Copeland. And he was very generous looking back. I mean, I'd, we didn't like each other very much at the time, but he allowed us. Why? The, well, he was a business guy, and I, I wasn't that interested in the business part of what was going on. I just wanted to do what we did, and I wanted to do it our way. And Who in the band was taking care of business? Mike? No, we had a manager and a lawyer who were helping us. And so nobody in the band, you had to rely on people you trusted to take care of that. Right. And it all worked out well. You were happy. We were really lucky in, in that regard. And, you know, we, we kept our eye on it and, and didn't allow those things that break up bands to break us up. So we had a really long, great career and chose the time to disband. And, and I think we even did that. It was that. a time you almost broke up, we, though, I correct? Think we even did that right. Um, yeah, I mean, over and over again, sure. every record. But when you had conflicts with people you make music with, what is the conflict typically over? I, I mean, I, I was very young and, and very shy, and so I, I would just shut down. I would go into kind of a quiet, you know, I would I would be silent for three days, which nobody wanted because it made it it made everything impossible. Those guys were more loud and often got their way, but it but often it kind of pulled me out of, you know, we were in a, in a, in a band dynamic, everyone's got an idea and an opinion and what happened what what happens when it all comes together is this this beautiful compromise where one person over kind of oversees one part another oversees another part somehow it all works so that chemistry served us pretty well for most of our career but but it was you know it was at times very very difficult and i'm proud of the times that we failed we failed horribly and but we own that. You know, we didn't blame the other guy. We didn't blame the industry. We didn't blame radio. We just agreed that we had not made the best record or the best song or, or the best recording. Some of my favorite recordings of our work is not what wound up on records, but what wound up in live performances. Such as? The song Lotus is a, is a good example of a song that we recorded. Lotuses. Lotus is the name of the song, and it's a good song, but it's way too long on the record. It's too slow, which is my fault. And we recorded it uh, and mixed it at a time when we weren't really talking to each other. So it was very difficult to arrive at a place that made sense. Live, the song is faster. We're adrenalized because we're performing it in front of 20,000, 30,000 people or whatever, and it got a lot better. It got a real lot better. So... For my money, you know, the recording of that song is kind of this interesting document of a moment in time, but, but the real song emerged in live performance. Is there a producer or, I mean, like, who decides? You, especially in the early days before you become big stars, like, who's sitting there sitting there going, well, you're going to come in here, and you look, drop that note down a little bit. Who's, who's the decider? We always had final say. We always had final cut on everything. So all of our records were produced with a producer, but we were co-producing. So the band had final say and final cut. Was there one of you who had a better ear than the other in terms of how this music should be mixed? Did somebody have a gift for that? No. Right. No. Everybody had an opinion. Yeah. Right. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like performing live? I loved it. Yeah. Right. What's the first time you performed live? Because Murmur becomes the album of the year from Rolling Stone. You beat out Thriller. Yeah. To become the album I know. of the year. Incre incredible. Yeah, I was 23. Incredible. That was, that was, How did that you feel about of, that? 
I wanted to crawl into a hole and bury myself. I mean, you didn't was, want to be famous. No, I wanted to be famous, but I but my idea. Of you fame, did want to be famous. Of course, I did. My idea of fame was this kind of teenage fantasy version of it. It didn't require all the work and all the scrutiny and all the kind of like all the stuff like. Being able to look you in the eye and sit here and talk about myself is something that it took decades for me to be able to do, and that, that's not my nature. Why do you think it's not your nature? Well, I mean... You are a shy person. Yeah, yeah, I, I still am, but right. I've, I've managed over the course of 56 years to kind of emerge... I always say to people... I'm ...some I, version I, I, of adulthood. But I say to people, I think I am a shy person, and they look at me and they go, you're kidding, you're, and I you're go, out of your mind. I, go, I just overcame <laughs> it so extraordinarily... <laughs> The thing you figure out when you're around a lot of creative people is is that if you're a creator, you have to create. It's not a choice. It's not something that you do because you want to be famous. It's something that, or because you want to be recognized for some for this or that, you create because you have to. And maybe that's what separates the wheat from the chaff when it comes to a culture that now allows people to be famous just for the fact of being famous, or that. You're, you're acknowledged and, and recognized for something other than a talent or a thing that you can offer that's unique or interesting. One time I did a, a concert-style version of South Pacific, and it was Reba McIntyre and Brian Stokes Mitchell are the leads, and we're there, and Paul Gemignani's there conducting this orchestra. It was, it was, it was like a 90-piece orchestra. Wow. And they go, okay, are we ready? We're going to rehearse, and we're going to sing, and they call up someone, so we're going to sing Bally High. And all of a sudden, this orchestra would be like, banana. The music would play behind. I'm sitting there in a chair. The orchestra is five feet behind me. And I get this chill that just shoots right up my skull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh my God, this is music, you know? What was the first time you stepped out in front of a stadium crowd? What was your first big My first ballet high moment. What was your first Paul <laughs> Gimignani moment? Um, we, one, of the, one of the things that Miles Copeland, who had IRS Records, did was he put us on a bill at Shea Stadium with Joan Jett. And the Black Hearts opening for the police. So we played to sixty thousand people. We had we played five songs. I said I would do it if I could wear a wedding dress. Someone said I dare you for a hundred dollars, which at the time was a very very large amount of money to me. I dare you to wear a wedding dress. She's taking me. I said I'm gonna fucking do it. So I went looking for a wedding. I couldn't find one. I found a tuxedo. So I wore a tuxedo instead. A really ratty tuxedo. Did, did you I tell the guys in the band you had planned on wearing a wedding yeah, dress? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were cool with it. They were fine with they it. Didn't they care. didn't care. They didn't give a fuck. Right. Um, they wanted you to be you. But I, I remember it because it was raining, and we had five songs, and it was this giant place. And to the band, it meant everything because the Beatles had, had famously performed there. To me, it was just this big outdoor show. It was your wedding day. <laughs> it was my wedding day, right, as it turns out. And my dress was... You were getting married to 60,000 people. My dress wasn't starched. How did it feel? You know what's interesting is that I don't really remember the show so much. I remember the backstage, what was happening. Andy Warhol was there. That was thrilling for me. Matt Dillon was there. And this was after, not The Outsiders, what was the... Um, Rumblefish. Rumblefish. He had done Rumblefish. And, and I was a huge fan. And he was kind of like hanging out... In, in between these two trailers, one was ours, the other was Joan Jett's. And I was like, wow, Joan Jett knows Matt Dillon. How exciting is that? And we were kind of peeking through the window. And then there was a knock at the door, and it was Matt Dillon. And he was a big REM fan. So he sat with us, and we talked for a long time. And I was kind of touched by that, very touched by that. REM's Michael Stipe. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Michael Stipe talks about how he became politically aware. 
Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. I'm Frank Imperial, and this is Here's the Thing. There's a deep passion in R.E.M.'s music, and Alec marveled at how it never crosses over to sentimentality. I could cry right now. Thank you for saying that. I'm a very sentimental person, and I, and I despise sentimentality. I despise nostalgia. Uh, Do you agree I'm, that that's a hallmark of the music you guys make? I w- I'm very flattered that you say that we go to that line and we never cross it. In my, in my most critical, closer than anybody I know. Well, thank you. In my most critical moments, I would say, well, no, we crossed it many times, and and not so gracefully. But I appreciate that. That's a huge compliment. As a writer, that's a huge compliment, and as a singer, because you can. The way the way something is performed, the way you put it down on tape, really can make or break it. I, I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of an example of someone who's very very brilliant with that. I think Sia is brilliant with the way she uses her voice. There are other singers throughout our lives, and we don't have to name names, who have amazing voices but have no idea how to use them, or they overuse them, or their producers, they do that crack at the high note every single time, and by the end of the song, you're exhausted. Yeah, there's a thing they do. There's a thing, regardless of. 
after murmur and after you start to take off and, and really make it, mm-hmm. one of the things I'm always curious about for uh, highly successful musicians of whatever type of music is, is music in your life, other people's music, and then the obligation and or, or even just the ambition to now drive your music to the next level? Does it push other music out or have you always listened to music and that's a really good question, and I'm going to answer it honestly. There's a point where I stopped being able to listen to other music, and it wasn't because I was afraid I was going to accidentally imitate or steal something from someone. Music became uninteresting to me. Now that I don't make music anymore, I'm able to listen to music. I'm able to read novels uh, and books. I'm able to absorb myself into TV shows and films that I just didn't have time for. I mean, I, I realized when R.E.M. disbanded five years ago, it took me about six months to recognize how much of a creative kind of fog I had been in with that band. I'm such a perfectionist. I'm such a control freak. I oversaw every aspect of the band, and and along with Peter and Mike and, and Bill when he was there. It completely consumed my every waking thought the entire time that that band was going. And so other things fell fell away. And I think I became a little bit of a less interesting person for it. Now, working, having a life that allowed me to not write a song about being on the road or being in a band or write songs about the industry of music, which is the most pathetically boring thing you could possibly, you know, focus on, but people do. One of my favorite songs that we ever wrote is called Supernatural, Super Serious. And it's this insanely beautiful narrative, really beautiful narrative about innocence and teenage ideas and how those are flattened uh, or dismissed or disregarded as an adult. And then you come back, it comes back at some point and you realize you're still that person. So that's all in this lyric for me. I probably need to write a little short story to go along with it for anybody that listens to the song because I'm not sure that I successfully managed to get all that into the lyric. Have you ever thought about writing a book like that where you explicate all the lyrics of your songs? Or I'm actually doing songs? it, uh, but I'm not doing a very good job of it, I have to say. <laughs> Maybe you need some help. <laughs> well, I'm, as you may have figured out in this conversation, I, I think in a very circuitous and tangential way. And so I'll always come back to my point, but I lose most people in the way. I, I have great stories and I'm a terrible storyteller. Now, the um, you are very well known and legendary, if you will, for your passions about causes. Yeah. When does that begin for you in your career when you say to yourself, I can't keep my mouth shut, I want to start talking about this? Well, it was the Reagan era and the country was falling apart in a way that, that was quite evident. And we were then, as, as a band, traveling overseas, representing America and getting shit thrown at us for the cruise missiles that were being sent over and put into position in parts of Europe. People were very, very unhappy about that. We became politicized quite quickly as a band. Um, and I'm a child of the 70s. You know, we came out of a place where everything that the 60s was, and this is, I think, perfectly encapsulated. Again, we'll talk about Patti Smith for a moment, but when she wrote Just Kids, that book to me is like the big chill, but for sentimental douchebags, for people that lived through it and were at one point told, you're a sellout and you have to get a job. And all of your dreams and aspirations, everything that you thought you could do with this thing is flatlined. Go get a job. Just Kids provided those people, for the first time, I think, a way of looking at themselves as children, as teenagers, as young people, again, and saying that innocence was quite beautiful. And in fact, we were right. Things didn't go our way, but 
we had a place. The people that dropped out in the 60s and then had to get jobs became the people that were teaching me in 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. And so in the early 70s in America, in public school, there was a very clear understanding that it was our job to talk about and fix uh, what became dramatic climate change issues, energy problems. The linchpin of what's going on. Everything. But I had an entire year-long course called Environmental Science taught by Miss Enoch. There was a textbook, and it was taught in public schools, in Texas anyway. As a 12, 13-year-old, I knew about all this energy stuff. And and so then as an adult, you know, you become politicized quite quickly when you travel outside of the country, and, and that's what happened to us. I was talking to other people who work in your business, which and like my business, which is a very youth-centered business in terms of the performing and mm-hmm. the whole the arc of it. And all of us, as we get older in this business, it changes. Was there a moment that you realized it started to change for you? Many times, uh, <laughs> as an as an older person in a you know rock and roll band for or pop band, yeah. There's a point where I said it's not a good look, and I we I we have to either grow with it and be who we are right now or stop. And I think we did a pretty good job of being people in their early 40s, mid 40s, late 40s, early 50s doing this. Not the perpetual teenager thing that a lot of people kind of go down that route and the cameras get a little fuzzier and pulled back a little more. I just didn't particularly see myself in that role. I'm now exploring all these other mediums that I'm really thrilled to be working in other than music. And I'm also, although I'm not prepared nor ready to be a pop star again, a pop singer. I'm dabbling uh, in music, and, and, and it feels Solo? Good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I started actually about a year and a half ago. A friend called me, Casey Spooner from the band Fisher Spooner, working on an album for a couple of years and got really stuck and said, I need help with the song. Can you help me? And I went in, and I, it was very clear to me what needed to be done, and I told him. But there was another piece of music playing while we were talking, and I said, can I comment on that one as well? And long story short, I wound up producing the album and co-writing every song on it. And so as a producer and writer, I've kind of come back into music through Fisher Spooner. You've been making films as well. You have a film production company? I stopped making film. You did? I stopped, Why? I stopped film because I, I needed to just step away from everything. And so when, when, when R.E.M. disbanded five years ago, I pretty much shuttered both of my production companies. Thrilled that we had done what we did in the, um, it was 27 years, I guess, of, I, I made about that many feature films, most of them very independent, the most famous one being being John Malkovich with Spike Jones. But I, I was really ready to just step away from everything and explore other mediums that I not wanted to, but photography need, needed to really look into. And Is photography into. the primary one now? Photography was my first love, photography before music. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing now, it's not, I don't, I think of myself as an artist who works in all these different mediums and music is one of them. And obviously the most, the one I'm best known for. But photography has come back around. I'm, I'm doing a book. I'm working on a book now. Jonathan Berger brought me to NYU to teach art for the fall semester of 2014. And that was thrilling. And out of that is coming a, a book of, of my work uh, that I'm working with him on. So that's really exciting. Um, you are such a uh, unique and such a kind of particular person. 
And you know that. Thank you. And, you, think... and you're performing. <laughs> well, I mean, you're performing, you're singing, and your style, and your appearance, and your kind of demeanor and everything. You're, you're very... Yeah. Was acting ever in the cards for you? Did you ever think about going off and making films and acting? I was offered the role of the psychopathic killer in the film Seven. They wanted someone very unexpected. And unfortunately, my band was going on tour the same month that they were started filming. So I wasn't, and, and it required nothing. All, all I had to do was run down some hallways and look scary. There was no dialogue. I'm so glad you didn't do that, by the way. I would have loved doing it. I, 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 I didn't like the way that movie ended. I, they, they changed something at the end that meant that Brad Pitt's rather than Morgan Freeman's character killed Kevin Spacey in the end, which shouldn't have happened. Uh, it didn't make sense. But, but yeah, I mean, I, no, I don't, I always felt like just because something is available to you through fame or through connections or through proximity, it doesn't mean that you should say yes to it. Yeah. And so I've been very careful with, I mean, the other mediums that I'm working in now are things that sometimes terrify me. I'm doing collage work. I'm, I, I despise collage. I'm working with, I'm working with hand, handwriting and my own line and I'm a terrible drawer. But I'm I'm working with the things that I most fear about myself, and I'm and I'm not showing them to the public unless I really think that I've got something. But this book that I'm working on, I'm kind of working through a lot of these things with the book, so it's it's been thrilling. I'm not saying that you should play Boo Radley, but you should play a Boo Radley type of character, <laughs> where no matter how unique or odd he may strike people in the hair and make up the whole appearance, deep down inside he's this beautiful soul. I would like you to stick to that. The, no. idiot, the idiot man-child. I'm, I'm good well, at that. That's the, what my dog thinks I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the idiot man-child. The freaky angel, I like yeah. to call it. The, 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 the weird angel. When no, I meet, no, no psycho killer. When I meet um, directors like Todd Haynes and Spike Jones, or I meet actors like yourself or John Malkovich, I realize that these are people that wake up with a need and a desire to do that thing. And I have so much respect for it that for me to even try, you know, I don't play trombone either. Why would I, why would I even want to ever try to play trombone? But I, I leave that to those that have that need, that wake up with that desire. My desires are, are in the same ballpark, but slightly different. And so that's where I've tried to spend my short time on this earth, hopefully to 120 or 95, at least I'll take 95, really focusing on the things that I feel like I might be able to, that will challenge me, that will challenge, hopefully, whatever audience I'm able to attain, and will keep me on my toes, keep me curious. Thanks to Tom York and Michael Stipe, and this show's regular host, Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is produced by Kathleen Russo, Carrie Donahue, and Zach McNeese. I'm the show's engineer, Frank Imperial. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 